Welcome to the Holonic Podcast. This is the 11th episode. I want to provide you, hopefully, with something that's kind of bright and exciting and wonderful to contemplate on. Uh, like, when I when I talk about utopias, I know that there's some... There's actually kind of a, a, a heavy history with them because of things like communism and, you know, some of the tragedies related to that in the past, but... I would like to say, and I'm not a communist, just to make you make that clear, I think you should know if you've listened to some of my other podcasts that that is not the case, but um, utopianism, you know, thinking about positive futures and the way to get there in particular, not just some sort of bright and sh- shiny fantasy, but practical solutions for which you can implement to get from here to there, that is something to me that's quite exciting and worth time to, you know, dig into, I guess. And uh, the more I've dug into philosophy, the more I find myself actually looking into kind of futurism philosophy. And that's kind of how can I articulate a world that is exciting for the future to live in and as comprehensive as possible and the methods and means for which to get from here to there and things of that nature. So I guess that is going to be the primary focus in this podcast is to kind of address that. How do, how do we get from here to there? How, uh, what kind of things might this take into account? Uh, both, so I'm going, to, I'm going to use particularly Ken's four-quadrant model to some degree, you know, tackling each of those. And that's just the interior of the individual and the collective and the exterior of the individual and the collective. So I, we, it, and it's. Um, the big three plus interobjectivity in some sense, uh, which is the good, to, the true, and the beautiful. Um, and there's great futurists out there. A lot of them tended to focus on the exterior stuff. One of my favorite actually does that, and that's Kurzweil. Whatever you think of him as an individual, and I don't know that much about his personal life, but I will say that you know he's been pretty on par with a lot of the technological progression that we've seen in the world up to this point uncanny almost to that in that space um and so i i do draw a lot from his thinking about what the future holds in that domain but it does start to look quite different when you really integrate the interior stuff to me there's kind of a black and white quality to uh a thinker that just kind of looks at the exterior landscape but i what some integral thinkers called reductionalism And it's like reducing the world to a fairly narrow domain. And that's why I'm kind of saying it's kind of black and white to me. Shadows of the fullness of existence in a certain respect. Nevertheless, there's still lots that can be garnered from those shadows in a certain respect. And it's not just shadows. I'm kind of being, you know, maybe not facetious, but I'm kind of being um, belittling a little bit when I say something like that. Uh, But, you know, there is some truth in my mind to it. Like there's a dullness and kind of a nihilism almost. The nihilists tend to reduce away the interior phenomenology. And without that, there's the lifeblood of existence kind of gets reduced away with it, in my opinion. So, you know, the idea with this is to, by resurrecting those interior world spaces, I hope to bring back that liveliness into the conversation, the bright and shiny components of existence, and integrate that with what could be bright and shiny uh, technological domains. And they kind of are, but to me, it's scary. It, it, it approaches the landscape of dread without that stuff to me. Like, 
that is an avenue of uh, potential dark side stuff. No, we just I won't go that far. But we'll just say that uh, I hope, I pray, <laughs> that that we get more of this kind of interior stuff integrated with it. And I see hopeful signs with the intellectual dark web and this sort of thing. Whatever you may think of it, to me, it's one of the few spaces that have really heard my voice a little bit, <laughs> or heard people like my my voice to to some degree. Even like I even see. Jordan Peterson and this sort of thing, having sparks of really integrality in his thinking, and that's that's a hopeful thing given his now prolific nature, right? So that's interesting. So let's dig into the stuff that you might know more of because it's more publicized, but even that is still relatively not publicized. So like Kurzweil stuff is still somewhat fringe despite the fact that he has a really kind of nearly uncanny track record of being, you know, pretty right from you know, text-to-speech systems, to driverless cars, to the computer capacity 10 to 15 years out from his prediction models, to, um, you know, the kind of advancements that we've seen in robotics and automation in general. You know, many other, about 80% probably track record on his predictions, roughly speaking. Maybe that's a little generous. I think some say 90, but, you know, I think that's a bit generous to some degree, but still, you know, that's pretty uh, impressive all the same, even if it's 70%. Um, and some of the things that, you know, so I'll first make the distinction if I haven't made it in previous podcasts, you know, he makes the distinction that there's Moore's Law, which is kind of ending with the shrinking of transistors, right? You can only shrink transistors to approximately, you know, a little bit over one atom or, you know, maybe two, three atoms in size before you run into the absolute limit of shrinking capacities. And we're almost there right now. So we're running to the end of Moore's Law's shrinking capacities. So there's been a slowing down of Moore's Law, which is the doubling of transistors every two years. And uh, as we move forward, he makes the argument of something bigger than Moore's Law, which he calls the Law of Accelerating Returns, which would mean that, in essence, we might jump to a different paradigm, which would be something maybe like quantum computing or perhaps uh, three-dimensional chips of this nature and then essentially something akin to Moore's law would be able to continue and if that's the case and his prediction models hold then what we're looking at roughly speaking by 2029 is a computer capable at least insofar as transactions per second and I'll make a distinction in a second but transactions per second it could compute the amount of transactions of a human mind for $1,000. And that might not sound like that impressive, but really think about that for a second. A $1,000 computer could do the work of a human brain. Pretty impressive. Now, when I say that, I'm going to make a few important caveats. To me, and I think Ken's right about this, the computer is very much like an alien technology. It's like an inter-objective data crunching system. Like, exclusively that, in my opinion. Human bodies are... A system of integrality of intelligences you know it comes from this this bottom-up stew of intelligences most of it unconscious to our thinking processes but they do play a huge role in the kinds of attitudes dispositions and processes of behavior that a human does on on the day-to-day and what I mean by that is that you know the drive for achievement the drive for survival the drive for love the drive for um, passion, these things are, you know, lo- largely in some sense rooted in these untel- in, untel- uh, <clears throat> unconscious intelligences that go way back, it's probably in the evolutionary route. 
And so we're stirred by that as humans. And uh, to take an abstraction model of code and think it can, you know, absolutely be a human in a certain sense, I think is naive, even though it might mimic certain things like humans with advanced coding. But I don't think it will have the real drives. It would be more of an artificial abstraction of those drives, unless it has the codified physiological systems that is a human. And then, in fact, you're just kind of taking humans and maybe enhancing them in some sense. So it's not that different than a human. So in other words, our physiology, like actually how we are as a physiological being with two legs, two arms, a brain of this sort, you know, our, physio uh, our stomach and this is all integral to the kind of intelligence that we are as a human being. And this is digging deeply into the philosophy of mind. I'm not going to skirt around the issue. You know, this is at the heart of what it is in my, my, my thinking to, to delve into the deepest roots of what the human brain mind actually might be. And it, you know, Ken talks about this a little bit. It's like, you know, the brain is not reducible to the mind or the mind to the brain. In other words, it seems they are co-compatible systems that need to be uh, aptly put in their functional domains. They both play co-roles in a certain sense, um, but it's not quite right to reduce one to the other. In that sense, what I mean by that is that when I'm thinking thoughts, I can actually generate novelty by digging into the many ideas that I'm having, and it's like a self-generated stuff. This is part of my freedom. The other hand, I can't just get up and fly, even though my mind will, might want me to, and so I'm bounded by my physiology. So it's both end. It's not one or the other exactly. It's both simultaneously. It's a deep thought. I'm not saying I expressed it perfectly, but I think you might be getting the idea. And people like Kurzweil tend to reduce the brain to the mind, and so when he talks about the future, He's talking really about the externalities of things and very little about the internalities of things, even though he's thought a lot about the mind. Don't get me wrong. He's not stupid about this stuff. He just comes from a different philosophic landscape. And with it, he carries different assumptions about these things. He's actually extremely intelligent in many domains, but I just think he's misguided in this front. And so, you know, again, when it comes to externality stuff, he's astonishing. He's hit the mark many times. Um, but I'm, I'm going to say at a certain point here, when we get a monumental leap in consciousness, his models I don't think are going to fully account for that. And that's like the monumental leap into yellow, which is the seventh system, which will bring about the speed that he's talking about. And actually he's coming from yellow. Maybe more turquoise is really going to throw curveballs on a, when, when, in my opinion, and this is going to be integral to the conversation later, so I'll just dig into it a little bit now things like subtle energies start to emerge in a real way. So what I mean by that is that if you look back in history, there's this idea of magic. And I'm not supporting magic, really. I think there's a lot of d potential darknesses. Just to say magic. There's magical thinking, which is early causative thinking. And it's like, okay, if I dance, it's going to rain. Or if I, you know wave the stick around, I'll put a curse on someone, or things like this. So a lot of that stuff is childish. It's not going to make any kind of profound difference on another sentient being, right? But the contention is, is that some of the people might have come up with certain practices that seem impossible to our minds as a rational, abstractive observer, 
but they actually could have causative effects on other people at a distance. And it's like unusual and rare. These would be the shamans or something of early societies. But my contention is, is that there is reality to some of this stuff. And like real, really kind of true stuff to this. Uh, rare, but true. My contention is that when turquoise starts to come online, it becomes like an inbuilt part of a person's existence at a low level. And you become like the rare people of those shamanic traditions thousands of years ago. It's like everyone in turquoise are now that to some degree. And these subtle energies are, or relations with the Holy Ghost or however you want to frame it. I don't have the best picture. I know I don't, but there's a lot of mystery to this to me too. But let's just say that there's these powers that are sort of supernatural start to occur in people's lives. And with that, you know, it throws curveballs to the kind of route thinking that is so commonplace in the objective Western world. It's like, this does not compute what's going on here. And when you start to see it more in your life, it's like, you know, A, how do I express it if I should express it and what's going on here? And, you know, it's just a landscape of mystery that starts to bubble up in the consciousness of these individuals, I think, on the whole. And it's rare because this landscape is very new and hard to get to because our culture is so gripped into the, the kind of modes of rational abstraction without the potentiation of internalized systems creating and crafting things that are transpersonal in the sense that they go beyond this physical body and affecting things at a distance. It's like, this is impossible. It can't be true. It's just like, doesn't compute, right? My contention is, is that there's at least a decent possibility by like 2029, this stuff will become not commonplace by any means, but a, a, enough people will have garnered these capacities that things like superhuman superhero stuff and not to the degree necessarily we'll get into it a little bit but a little bit like marvel superhero stuff maybe could be potentiated not long in the distance and so what that means is that there's hardware upgrades and that would be exponential tech and Kurzweil talks about this stuff a lot and it's gonna you know the wizard's hat that elon musk is building where there's a brain computer interface that connects in with your brain and you know gives you uh AI intelligence with your brain, and I think all that stuff is very, very possible. Add on to the, that um, energetic stuff where you can feel people at a distance and this sort of thing, then then it's a, a whole new ball game that is, again, not that different maybe from a Marvel-like world. I mean, maybe we don't fly around like Iron Man. Maybe that stuff is even further into the future. I'm not saying that's going to come in the next five years, but it could like that that stuff actually in some sense seemingly there's people already doing it it's just funding and stuff isn't there to to negotiate why the purpose for why we need it right um and a lot of you know superhero stuff is dramatic dramatized like it's like okay we've got to save the universe not just the world <laughs> and it's like so epic it's mind-numbing and beautiful don't get me wrong I, I love marvel movies i think it's one of the the most integral media out there right now you know when you think about the marvel universe and how much connectivity between the different it's really it is putting people in a world space that that is of the complexity for which we might really experience in the 2020s different i think quite different than that in some respects uh but the complexity is there all the negotiations and subtleties of all the the power dynamics and hopefully it's the power stuff is diminished by then to some degree at least the kinds of things that I, I think about a lot 
uh, but nevertheless, um, there's 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 a lot of complexity to it that is really integralizing to the human mind, in my opinion. So that's kind of exciting that they're pushing into that space before almost any other media out there, in my opinion, at a big scale. Like this is like Marvel's like one of the biggest most watched stuff out there and I really think it is pushing into early yellow if not late yellow stuff so it's kinda cool um, so okay getting into 2029 we're seeing this notion where um, I think we could potentiate things like the federated panarchy that I've been expressing not I mean, this is just the thing that I've been digging into mostly it's the best system uh, that I've come up with I guess maybe that sounds arrogant but you know anyway something that is uh, the geopolitical side of things which obviously needs to be worked out in far more detail that could be ironed out in a profound way by then where a lot of the kind of old ruts of how we work in the world and kind of drudgery uh, as a, that could be kind of diminished by then probably and um, automation would almost certainly, no matter where things go, automation is going to be profound role in the future, pretty much, unless we, you know, have a nuclear annihilation, and and that stuff's always on the table. So, I maybe say that too strongly, but yeah. So there's a really strong chance, though, that automation is going to play a huge, huge role. The less likely stuff, and I still think there's decent likelihood of this, is is integralizing cognition that takes into account the fact that we do develop through stages, and that healthy modes of development are going to really push uh, the best transition modes through these stages. Like, here's a good example. My, I don't know if I should say too much, but my uncle married an African woman and brought her child over to Canada. And, you know, this individual was raised in a fairly strong kind of, it seems, blue culture, right? Uh, for the most part, it's kind of very structured, rule-oriented, and this sort of thing. And he came over at the age of about 12. And I won't say too much, but all I'm going to say is that, you know, his transition here is one in which, like, he's laid down a very, very strong blue code, formal, I mean, uh, conventional operations. And it's like, you know, he's very good at following rules. And now he's thrown in at the right age, pretty much, to be taking on formal operations where there's kind of critical thinking, abstraction, and all this stuff. And all the family around him is like, you know, showing them different ways to do this, and it's like very alien to him, but he's doing pretty good. And it's like, you know, this kid, if it could actually become far more successful than many of the children today because of the fact that our education system does so poorly with conventional op stuff. And, you know, he has a very, very strong conventional op system operating in his body, in his body mind. And now he's getting, I think, because of my family, he's very, very good with formal op. He'll, he, he could be a great lawyer or something like this. And that's an amazing situation for someone that came uh, from the conditions that he came. And I think that's very exciting. And I hope that something like that happens. But in things, again, things like law might not be practiced in the way that I think about it now at all. Like automation could do so much of it. And it's already starting to when you think about like the filing. I forget what the word for it is and the, the kind of lawyer that does this. But they go through all the data crunching before the case and that's now starting to be automated away so even law very very quickly could be largely not entirely probably automated away so there's all these different things that so on, on the job front would be changed dramatically the economic front we're seeing major shifts in like cryptocurrencies and stuff is I think gonna play a huge role in the future I think there's little doubt in my mind that it's not gonna play 
I mean, even with Trump tweeting yesterday saying that, you know, cryptocurrencies are outside the bounds of the what what we should accept. I forget his exact tweet. You know, to me, it's from a bit of a dying system. No matter Trump's intent by it, I don't know his intent. He might, sorry, he might even be playing up the fact that he wants this to happen by. You know, this is what what a pundit said. I thought it was a very interesting comment. He said that the reason that Trump did it, which is interesting, it's probably not right, but the reason Trump did it was because uh, he, half the people in the world hate Trump, and so now they're going to be like, oh, maybe I should get into Bitcoin because Trump hates it. It's like reverse psychology stuff. Uh, and I actually have a lot of qualms with Bitcoin, too. I'm, I'm quite worried about... I, I, I was early adopter in the crypto landscape. I, I Generally, I'm supportive of it. I think it's outside the bounds of the... Uh, you know, the landscape of the monetary system and something huge needs to happen there. But the worry that I have is something akin to this. And I'll frame it up because this could play a role in our future. And a lot of this podcast is about our future, so I'll frame it up. The idea would be that, in essence, what could happen is the monetary system, uh, because it's so in debt and has things like the derivative system, which is like at the, in the quadrillions right now, and you have systemically risky banks like the Deutsche Bank in in Germany, which is, I think people have argued, the fourth most systemically risky bank on the planet, just teetering right now on bankruptcy with a huge hand in the derivative market. Like, I mean, massive. And this is, again, a, a multi-quadrillion dollar market. Kaiser, Max Kaiser, had made the, the statement that a way to frame this up in your mind is like the the... The derivatives market is like a bowling ball compared to the NASDAQ market, which is like a pellet uh, in size. Uh, you know, the NASDAQ market, I think, is about 5.7 billion. And, you know, it goes billion, trillion, quadrillion. The the derivatives market is in the multi-trillion, quadrillions. I think it's about four. Is the estimate. It's all kind of like a black... It's kind of hard to know exactly. So if Deutsche, which is like a huge hand in that, I don't know hundreds of trillions probably I don't know exactly I don't know if anybody knows exactly but in the trillions for sure in 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 the quadrillion in the derivatives market if they go under that bowling ball will start to move and it hasn't really moved even in the not much even in the 2008 financial crash that bowl that market didn't really move much and you know these little pellets could just be crushed or at least dramatically destroy uh, you know moved around if this if this market really has some issues so um, the contention that uh, a, uh, a thinker on YouTube made was that this would if if something as dramatic as that happened and it's not unreasonable to think that it couldn't then you could get Bitcoin who's a small market of just 320 billion and that is relatively small still you know, and that's that's the whole crypto cap, so that's all the cryptocurrencies. Uh, you could see that market, you know, t just eat the traditional market. And so 320 could go into the, the trillions or more. And all the people that have been late on the ball, and I'm saying like, you know, 70, 80-year-olds, this would be so tragic, you know, right? These people have worked all their lives. They've had a good life, and that's something to be happy about. But... Imagine, you know, someone that's saved up, uh, you know, let's say not something extreme, like um, a, a nest egg enough to, to retire on, right? So they're 80 years old, they just finished working, 
they've worked a hard life and now they 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 lose all their money in this crazy financial crash and i mean like your money gets into hyperinflation and what you could buy for bread today you can't buy tomorrow but cryptocurrency holds its value and goes crazy and people are flooding from the traditional market into the cryptocurrency market making it skyrocket right that's how it kind of works and this market just dies really quickly. I'm not saying that's that's exactly how things could. This is very very complicated. It's above my head, honestly. But this this is a potentiation that makes a certain amount of sense to me. So then those people that are good, you know, heart of the earth people, you know, can't even survive, right? And rely on aid if there is any to get by. So anyway, that's just something that, that I don't like about the cryptocurrencies, the fact that it could easily make trillionaires of people that don't necessarily deserve it, necessarily. You know, early adopters and thinkers on the space do deserve something, don't get me wrong. I think that that stuff, the pioneer, maybe should be rewarded a bit for seeing something about the future that is prescient. Um, beyond that, though, uh, getting a trillion dollars for nothing is probably unsustainable for the individual and for the world. So that's a worry that I have about Bitcoin and the like, other cryptocurrencies. Um, anyways, but I do think, I nevertheless think, that cryptocurrencies are probably here to stay and maybe we can even develop something better. Uh, like one of the models that I've been working with is multiple shit. Anyways, that's aside. I won't even get into it. But So that domain is changing dramatically and quickly. And uh, the government, you know, I think that decentralized government, however it looks, I, I argued for a panarchy or federated panarchy, some sort of decentralized government makes a lot of sense to me in the future. And it could easily take the role of like a crypto-backed decentralized system, uh, for better or worse, that, you know, is implemented across the planet, hopefully for the better. Like, I think there's a good chance it will be at least moderately better. But I, I tend to think that most people in the crypto space are externalist right so again there's a lot of kind of shadowy stuff that that is their focus without the kind of interior landscape to me that is the richness of the vital existence and so to me uh, the painted picture of that landscape if it's adopted through a purely crypto lens would be a little bit tendence towards nihilism and stuff like that without God or something bigger than yourself. I guess that's the big thing with the interior stuff. In, in healthy modes, it seems like there's more adoption for the idea, oh, there's somebody bigger, better, greater than me that's doing something like this. And it's like, how do I do that? And so that's what development often is. It's like looking up, oh, this person does this way better than me. How do I recognize my mind to like figure out how that could actually work? How could I do that? And, you know, you see it in people like Rogan, Joe Rogan. He's like, he's doing that intuitively. I think he's making a space for freedom of the mind. And that's why I think he's part of the, actually very much a leader in the intellectual dark web, an integralist in that sense. Uh, but he's doing it mostly unconsciously. He's not doing it with a lot of foresight into the, the ideas of philosophy of the mind and <clears throat> that landscape very much, perhaps. Sorry, I'm losing my voice. I want to keep going here. Maybe I'll have to make this into a two-part uh, episode because my voice is starting to go. So this will be part one. I'll pick you up on part two. Cheers.